everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the hot holiday guy in the ugly sweater, Knockreiner. <laughs> and yes, I am a hot holiday guy. I don't say it, Mark. Don't. Don't. I, I mean, honestly, I feel like I've made fun of you for not saying Nostradamus enough times, and it's time for you to start calling yourself Nostradamus for episodes like this, uh, where we're going to go into our 2023 cybersecurity predictions. Uh, so with that, I'm going to tactfully avoid everything Corey just said, and we'll go ahead and <laughs> get rolling with the predictions. But it's such an awesome sweater, and I am so hot. It is a cool <laughs> Come sweater. Come on, admit it. Admit it, Mark. Half of that statement is accurate. Isn't it like 30 degrees there? How's that possible? There, that's right. It's physically hot. That's exactly what I meant. The ugly hot holiday guy in the ugly sweater. So it is, uh, man, almost done with December. This is weird. I feel like this year went by real damn quick. 2022 uh, just feels like an extension of 2021 that went so fast. Yeah, agreed entirely. But coming up on the end of the year now, it is time to finally discuss our cybersecurity predictions for the year of 2023. Uh, so I think it was almost about a month ago, pretty even, where we went over a recap of our 2022 predictions that we made uh, a year prior. D minus. <laughs> hey, it's passing grade. I'll take it. We passed. Yes. <laughs> By the way, um, there's been, I, we won't go into updates, but there was a few things at the end of the year that I recall might have adjusted a few of those in our favor, but let's let's get to the new ones. Exactly. And so as we promised, it is now finally time to discuss our predictions for next year on this podcast. And uh, before we jump into that, uh, Corey, do you want to again go through why we discuss predictions at all? Yeah, I'll do it really quickly because if, uh, if you've listened to this podcast for years, you probably heard it before. But these predictions are fun. We're not Nostradamus. We're not going to be exactly right all the time. So I don't think you should pay as much attention to the, 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 the specific prediction gets very specific. And we do that so it's not just a throwaway give me prediction. And because we want to have a little bit of fun with it. But what really matters is the trends that are guiding our prediction have already happened. The trends are there. So the trends you're going to hear us talk about, whether it's the, the use of VR, the use of artificial intelligence, social engineering trends, all of these predictions are based on real trends that have already happened. So the point is, the whole reason we do predictions is to guide you toward practical takeaways. What is evolved in the threat landscape trend-wise, how that could get a little worse, but more importantly, if you do something about the existing trends now, you may not have to worry about the worst version of these predictions. Uh, having said that, a lot of the time on our podcasts, we know we we uh, we talk to the channel, we talk to our end users who are mid-market and SMB customers, our channel who are managed service providers. So we often talk about business and organization security, but in our predictions is another place we go wider. We talk about 
all of cybersecurity, whether it be social ramifications, political ramifications, consumer issues, uh, you know, Internet of Things beyond, uh, you know, business. So just know the predictions also are a wider scope, but we still try to give you practical takeaways. So they're fun. They get a little dystopian, but the whole point of it is for the prediction not to come true because you guys realize the trend, defend against it, and the better you defend, the less our predictions matter. The only other thing, I'll go ahead, Mar. I was going to say the only other thing is you'll notice if you watch our videos or even the webinar we did on this, uh, there are six predictions, although I think me and Mark will talk about two extra credit ones that we struck. But we organized the six into three different themes like artificial intelligence, business processes, and things like that. And the, the kind of conceit me and Mark used for the video was pitting one prediction against the other. It's fun. I suggest you go watch it. Uh, it. It was fun for us to make fun of each other and kind of rib each other. But the truth is, we believe in all six of these predictions. So for this one, I think we're just going to go through what the six predictions plus the two extra credit ones are. Yeah. Anything if, to add to that, Mark? If you do want to check out the videos and the rest of the content around this, they're going to be on watchguard.com slash predictions. Uh, going to be. They are currently there. They will probably also be there when you visit it too. Yeah, they um, just so, came out. It's awesome. Exactly. Uh, with that said, uh, let's go ahead and hop into the first prediction. Uh, Corey, I think this one is yours. Yes. And our first prediction is we will see the first metaverse hack in 2023. I'm sorry, everyone. I said metaverse out loud. I know that's kind of a gross buzzword. Having said that, I'm a VR fan. I actually like VR a lot. Uh, you don't I, say. Metaverse. Yes, uh, Mark's going to make fun of how many headsets I have again. I do have a lot of them. Uh, but I think VR is cool. Uh, Metaverse is only gross because Zuckerberg started claiming it. It was used in sci-fi writing long before him. He did not coin that phrase, and unfortunately, he's made it poison since. Uh, but to be honest, I actually I like Oculus. Zuckerberg may not be running it the way I want, but I will give Zuckerberg credit for actually making VR more consumer-friendly and increasing the chance that this prediction will come true. At the cost of all your privacy. <laughs> so why do we have this prediction? Well, well, first of all, VR is finally getting more popular. I've been following VR when people made fun of it and no one used it. Uh, I predicted it would become popular and I think it will be. Uh, you know, it's not going to replace real life. I'm not someone that wants to only exist in the metaverse. But I think it's an amazing thing. Uh, and it's finally the, finally the technology is catching up in a way that normal consumers can use it. Headsets like the Quest True 2, it's easy of use and even some of its features that make people less sick, I won't go into the nerdy details, have made VR finally something that uh, I'm often playing Beat Saber with, uh, uh, you know, a diverse crowd of even, uh, you know, uh, older women who are playing at home with their kids in the background rather than just really nerdy gamers like me. So it's becoming bigger. The issue is VR, as it exists two years ago, already collects a lot of privacy information on you. Uh, first of all, everything you share with social networks, you, you share when you register with VR. You know, you probably know the Oculus uh, people were irritated when Facebook bought them and required for a period of time a Facebook account to use it. And even though they removed that, they still require a meta account, which is pretty much still a Facebook account. So you still have to give away personal details. But it's also the addition 
additional information the sensors on these devices track just to do their job. You know, uh, VR headsets, they have to have six degrees of freedom. You know, they're tracking everywhere my head moves, but also everywhere my hands move based on the controllers, and nowadays even hand tracking with how my fingers move. Uh, all of that is is gathered in something that, you know, how, how are threat hackers going to be able to use our positional data? More importantly, one of the things that made VR more consumer friendly is it used to be you had to have these external sensors paying attention. They called it outside-in tracking. Uh, for that you had to set up all over your walls, really complicated setups to for them to track your location. And these sensors were not traditional cameras. They were kind of IR and, and, and LiDAR-like sensors in some ways. But new headsets, the ones that have made these standalone cheap, not the Quest Pro, but the Quest 2 headsets much cheaper, is something called inside-out tracking, where they literally have four to five cameras pointing in different positions. And these are normal 2D cameras. And what they're doing is taking, by taking five different 2D views, you can do something called photogrammetry to get a 3D even textured 3D map of the area you're in. And that helps both tracking your position in it. But if a bad actor was gathering all that data, any place I am with my VR headset, I could give an internal view, even a texture map view of that actual area. So think of all that data that existing headsets already track your movement data, a map of your room. Now, this Quest Pro one I keep on putting up is one that's designed for productivity and business. Uh, it's made not just to allow you to have a much more virtual view of your own laptop. It's made so that you can have 3D in-person with avatar Zoom meetings where they have eye tracking and face tracking. My real expressions show up, my eyes show up, my fingers show up. I can move my hands around and be in a place with you as a person. Actually, I, I can tell you the experience of that with friends is kind of fun. Seeing eyes and mouth move, it actually makes it feel like a human interaction. As much as Mark is shaking it, his head, I didn't buy it for any of that collaboration BS. And yet I can tell you factually, it makes it feel like you're with that person. But if you think maliciously, knowing what my eyes are looking at when I'm looking at a web page, having all that data, even having my general behavior of how Corey tends to move as a person by gathering all the historical data of my movement, imagine how deep fakes go from, okay, I can make a video of Corey that looks convincing, uh, but it's based on someone else's movement. I can make his voice because I got 30 seconds of his speech, but now I have his, his actual historical movement for a period of time if I can somehow get the data that's being tracked on these VR machines. The point I'm trying to make is it's the cool technology that I actually like, even though I think Mark is like, bleh, sounds horrible. But it, it has a lot of dark side potential if it gets in the wrong hands. But really, the main thing the prediction is based on is the other part of this Quest Pro is it's made for productivity. These headsets are now trying to, they've proven now that consumers are starting to dot, dot VR for games. What if businesses can find value in it? So the pre Quest Pro is all about productivity use cases where I connect it to my enterprise computer and I can have multiple, I'm still using my computer, it will track my keyboard so I know where my real life keyboard is. I can even see my desk and everything if I choose, but I have a bunch of virtual screens. I can extend the capabilities of my computer to a much wider virtual space. So they're really pushing that. But guess what? 
that part of VR is based on existing remote desktop technology, technology that's almost exactly the same as RDP and VNC. You have to install, for instance, a, a third-party and or meta remote desktop app on your enterprise computer to use this on your business computer, which is actually intended for. So as simply put, the prediction is this enterprise access and specifically maybe even this remote desktop connection that these productivity headsets are exposing is going to finally be the way that the metaverse VR has its first actual hack that affects the enterprise company. Sorry, I went into too much detail, Mark. You know, I'm a VR nerd. I talk too much in general, but you get me on VR and then I really go off. Please tell us more about how much you love virtual reality and everything being provided by Meta for you. Hey, I, just because I love VR does not mean I love Meta. <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest. Like, I think VR is pretty cool too. I'm looking forward to the PSVR 2 coming out next year. There's Two no pre-orders right here. Ever give Zuckerberg any money or any access to me, my house mapping, my face, or any of that? I'm, so. I'm very happy. I'm very happy. I think that's a smart decision. But what I think is surprising is that you consider Sony any better, or any company for that matter. I, I'm, yes, there are some that I think are different. I think just Facebook is the pinnacle of I would not trust them with anything personal. Anyways, they are they're you are directly Facebook's product, whereas Sony doesn't really have as much excuse. At least they're making money from you in another fashion, yep. at least for now. So moving on to our second prediction, this one's called MFA social engineering surges. And so if you've been paying attention in the industry, I mean, in your own professional life, you've probably seen that MFA adoption is really starting to tick up, like depending on which survey you go with, can see it's anywhere around like 40% or so of organizations have deployed MFA in some capacity, which is way lower than it needs to be, all things considered, uh, but still pretty great. Um, so with MFA adoption increasing, it's actually making it more difficult for cyber threat actors to carry out authentication attacks against organizations and would-be victims. Uh, it used to be without multi-factor authentication. All they had to do was go online and buy a set of credentials um, or maybe compromise another website or service and crack all the usernames and passwords out of there, or just send a phishing message to your employees, trick them into filling it out on some fake form for Google Docs or OneDrive or whatever, and use that password and username to log straight into the account. Multi-factor authentication makes that significantly more difficult with that additional hoop that they have to get past. Uh, whether it be the user accepting a push notification or entering the six digits from their, their revolving pin code or hardware token or whatever. And that additional hoop has made it very difficult for a traditional authentication attack to actually succeed. That said, as with all things in cybersecurity, threat actors are constantly evolving with what they're doing and what they're targeting to get around the protections were in place. And we found even just recently towards the end of this year, that while MFA does a great job of protecting against a authentication attack, it is still absolutely vulnerable to social engineering attacks against users. You've seen uh, news stories, and we've talked about on this podcast, of things like push bombing or MFA fatigue, where a threat actor will get a valid username and password and then attempt to log into that account over and over and over and over so that the victim that's being compromised just keeps getting push notifications on their phone the or device. 
often purposely at inopportune times for their victim, right? Like it, it'd be great if they could do it over and over and over when you're asleep. They, they do need you to do something, but maybe if they're, hope, they're, they're hoping that an inopportune time might make the victim even be more inclined to do something they shouldn't. Like if you are sleeping and your phone will not stop buzzing from all these requests. Uh, we saw a pretty major security incident uh, in September of this year with the Uber breach, uh, where the threat actor did uh, push bombing. So over and over and over attempting to log into the VPN and then hopped onto WhatsApp and convinced that user into accepting one of the notifications by claiming to be from the IT department saying, hey, we recognize it's going all frizzy. Just hit OK on one of them and it should be OK. And I like that smart detail. In this case, it wasn't an inopportune time that tricked him, but the additional thing of both doing the bombing, but having another avenue of pretended support to give a reason. Like I, I would, we'll talk about it, but I think most users should know that push bombing, like the first, if you're getting a lot of MFA pushes that you didn't start, right away you should know they're not right. So the bad guy has to get past that part of you knowing it's probably not a thing they should approve either by inappropriate time or in this case, smart addition of having an excuse for why they were receiving it. Yeah. And there are some like protections you can put in place for the push bombing side of things. Like it's you obviously can't push with a revolving token on your phone. That does make it more difficult for your users on day-to-day -day usage because now they have to enter in a code. Um, you maybe even see some hybrid models of a push notification that includes like a challenge they have to enter from the website to try and make it more difficult to fall for this. But that's only one style of the MFA circumvention that we're predicting as well. The other one is the adversary in the middle attacks, like evil proxy that we talked about earlier this year, where the attacker sets up infrastructure to mirror and proxy traffic to a legitimate application. And then sitting in the middle of all this, they not only get the username and password that the user entered, but from the target application, they'll get a valid authenticated session cookie that they can use to just hop right into that authenticated session, add their own MFA device uh, to retain their access with that username and password they stole, and start abusing their access to move laterally or commit business email compromise against other organizations too. And so our prediction is really around this, attackers will ramp up their social engineering to circumvent multi-factor authentication. Because the reality is like MFA, again, fantastic at preventing authentication attacks, but is still susceptible to social engineering. So deploying it on its own and saying, we're done, we're good, is not good enough. You need to make sure that you're still also doing social engineering training for your users, including how to spot phishing attacks, whether it be over email or SMS or WhatsApp or a phone call, basically treating, teaching them to be skeptical of stuff that they receive until proven otherwise. Also teaching them to not just accept a push notification because they're annoyed by it and specifically report back to the IT or security team because that almost certainly means that their password has been compromised and you'll want to act on that as well too. Um, so. Yeah, this is one we've seen it start to ramp up even just in the last few months, and we expect it to go up even more in the next year as more organizations adopt multi-factor authentication. Agree. And by the way, th th this doesn't necessarily mean your multi-factor authentication solution itself is bad because usually the, the multi-factor in the social engineering standpoint, the multi-factor is working how it should. It's just the they're convincing the user to accept something that's not legitimate. But with the attacker in the middle one, I, I mean, the, there are cases where 
the integration of the multi-factor solution has weaknesses too. So consider those. So yeah, I agree with this. I, I don't make this not adopt, but don't make this allow you to have an excuse not to adopt MFA. It's not, it works. It's way better than passwords or any single factor by itself and you need it. It's just the next step once you have multi-factors, make sure that the human part of authentication is still handled in your, your training as Mark said. So just jumping right into the next one, I'll try to go quick on this one for times, but in 2023, we'll see some sort of robo-taxi hack. Uh, I'm guessing a lot of you probably know the term robo-taxi or what it is, but all of us know what Uber and Lyft are. We know that cool app experience of where we just press a button on our phone and some guy comes and picks us up in a car. We also know that many companies are creating self-driving cars, including uh, there's a fun YouTuber I watch called Marquis Brownlee, who just, he's part of, he he knows Tesla. He's, he's a big tech guy. Uh, many people do him, uh, you know, he's got a big YouTube following, so a lot of tech companies preview their stuff with him tesla just released a beta of their fully self-driving car rather than the one that just is basically highway exist and uh, he, he's done a bit on how well that actually gets from point a to point b so interesting watch if you're interested in self-driving cars but a robo taxi is just that it's the uber lyft experience minus a driver uh, and as much as self-driving cars are not really all, way, all over the highway quite yet. Believe it or not, robo-taxis are already in use. There's a couple different companies, not Uber, by the way, not Tesla, but uh, other name companies, both in San Francisco, Beijing. One just announced a trial that's happening real time with customers uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, the Beijing one claims to have over a million of un, you know, unpersoned drives of robo taxi drives with real clients so people have taken existing self-driving technology already and are proof of concepting these robo taxis so that's the thing that's happening and i think you'll see increasingly happen in 2023 but you add to that the fact that we already know there's a ton of car hacks. Charlie Miller and Chris Vlasek uh, are the first folks that really got their name by hacking a Jeep system. They proved that the internet-connected or SIM card-connected entertainment and navigation systems of cars are accessible remotely over the internet or, or a phone number. And they proved that there's enough connection between the entertainment system and the other electronic control units or computers all over a car that they can gain access to some of the self-driving capabilities that are in cars. You know, even non-self-driving cars tend to have brake assist in, in you know, don't run into someone as, you know, steering wheel assist here and there to make sure that you don't run into somebody. And they proved that you could hack a car remotely. Then you tie some of the things even Mark's talked about when you have an app that connects to a car, the mobile app becomes another avenue. And of course, these robo taxis will involve mobile apps that you connect to. And what we're essentially uh, predicting is a robo taxi will run into some sort of hack in 2023. That said, it may not be a technical hack like the one we're talking about. The other interesting thing, and we'll get into other, I mean, this is an AI theme prediction that Mark will have one too, but AI can be socially engineered. One of the first hacks that's just kind of fun that we've seen happen against self-driving cars is they're using sensors. Sometimes they're specialized depth sensing LiDAR sensors, but in Tesla and many other cases, they're just a fleet of 2D 
traditional imaging cameras. And these cameras are using AI to figure out, okay, there's the lines on the road, whether it's dotted or solid. There's what different signs look like. There's some road cones. They're using just image sensing uh, and image detection to recognize all these things. And an early researcher found that just using the ice salt that we use to de-ice our roads, you can use ice salt to create fake lines on a road. And some of the early self-driving AI would dumbly uh, assume that that is a real line. Mark gave a good example on our webinar of where not only did they use it to turn a car, but they could actually force it into a circle where it just circled forever by playing with a dotted versus undotted line that they drew the car into using the, the ice salts. So we predict that now that these robo-taxis are in the public being used by real people, granted in small volumes, there's going to be a hack against them. But because of the, the limited market in the small volumes, they're still in testing. We don't think it's going to be any dangerous kill somebody in a robo-taxi hack that some big threat actor does. Instead, we think it's going to be more a prank level hack where someone's going to think it's funny to get a poor customer in Vegas to be stuck in an alley or, or cause a big traffic jam because they force a self-driving car to stop somewhere. I, honestly, this is one of my favorite ones because it is still a relatively new technology. Like we're not taking robo taxis everywhere we go. This is clearly the future that a lot of organizations like Uber and Lyft are trying to actually, I think Uber just canned their self-driving car thing because they were hemorrhaging money. But some organizations are trying to go to to try and save cost on paying a driver to do it when you can just pay for the car itself. Um, yeah. And I think it's still new enough that there is a lot of room for research here. And I, for one, I'm looking forward to the, the fun pranks before it gets too widely adopted and we have to worry about the safety aspect of it. From and by the way, the fun thing. pranks are often from researchers and their point is just what you said. They do the prank version, but it scares the companies enough to put in the right security controls so that we don't have the no one exactly. wants anyone to die in a self-driving car. I'm looking forward to the Black Hat or probably more specifically DEF CON talk on someone uh, hacking one of these robo taxis sometime next year. So AI was a theme and I hear you have another AI prediction too. I do. So AI, it's been used, uh, it's, its usage in like IT and security has been growing rapidly over the past few years. Like we use in the Firebox as an example, we've got Intelligent AV, which uses a machine learning model to quickly predict whether a file is going to be malicious or benign. And it does that by training its machine learning model using millions of known bad and known good malicious files. So it can make it really quick, almost as quick as a signature-based service and more accurate prediction on stuff that it doesn't even know about. Like it's never seen it before, but it can come up with a good idea if it's going to be good or bad. AI has other applications as well too. And one really big one that we saw really take off just this last year was in software development. Uh, if you work in software development, you're probably already very familiar with GitHub Copilot. Uh, if you don't, it's this new application or plugin that GitHub just released this year, uh, plugs into your integrated developer environment or IDE, and it basically suggests code as you type out and try and program a, a, a program. Uh, so like, let's say you're writing a, the back end for a website and you need to interact with a SQL database. If you've got Copilot installed and turned on, you can type in the comment that you would typically put if you're a good developer, explaining what the function's going to do. Say, this needs to insert this record, update this user, and delete this other record. And just based off that comment that you put in there, 
GitHub Copilot will recommend the entirety of the function, and in, in general, it works. It is valid working yeah. code. By the way, I, I to, for the non-coders out there, I'm sure if anyone follows tech news, it's the same as uh, going to one of the AI image generators and say, here's some pictures of me. I want a version of me that's a badass Viking from the 18th century holding a sword and killing an orc. And the AI art will generate that exact thing for you. It's just the coding version of that. Or it's even the chat G GPT version. If you've read about how... Uh, you know, we, me and Mark have watched how these have evolved from like, you could ask it, give it prompts for a story. And it told a really silly story that obviously wasn't human and was more amusing from its mistakes. Now you say, I want a movie about XYZ. And my goodness, it's actually a pretty compelling good story. So if you've been following the non-technical kind of art and storytelling ways that AIs have evolved, what Mark's talking about is simply the coding version. A, a non-artist can now get a picture from somebody else, from a combination of all the world's history of, of artworks that we know. Now somebody can create code just by prompting it based on all the code works that it's using. Exactly. And so with Copilot specifically, that machine learning model, the AI, is trained using every single public GitHub repository that's out there, all the good ones and also all of the bad ones, uh, which means that depending on the prompts you give it, uh, it can impact whether you get a, a, a working function. For the most part, all the functions it gives are working. Um, but B, one that potentially has vulnerabilities like a SQL injection issue, using that earlier example. There's even research that was uh, presented at DEF CON this year uh, where they went through Copilot and found that even changing the name of the author in the source code file was enough to impact the number of vulnerable versus non-vulnerable suggestions that Copilot gave uh, the software developer. If you use the author name of someone that wrote like a really well-known and uh, well-written application, like a, like a Python, the Python requests library as an example, you tend to get better results back. But if you change the name to some nobody or someone that isn't a good developer like Corey, uh, you could potentially get way more vulnerable I thought, I thought we weren't doing battle predictions, <laughs> Mr. Mark. Oh, this How about Corey, the one that doesn't even use Copilot? You're the <laughs> one that brought it to my attention. I'm kidding. Honestly, so the reality is like Copilot is awesome and it's becoming widely adopted across the industry because it does a fantastic job of suggesting good working code, and for the most part, non-vulnerable code. Um, but it's not perfect, which means that if you are already a weak software developer and you don't have good uh, coding practices, maybe you already have vulnerable code, it's going to take all of that into consideration when it's suggesting a new function for you for your program. And so if you already have vulnerabilities splattered throughout your code, you're most more likely going to get a vulnerable function returned to you as well, too. So the prediction is a overly reliant developer is going to release an application that includes a critical vulnerability introduced by automated code. And I think this one, like that, we set the bar pretty dang low there. I think we're going to potentially see more than just ah application. Oh, yeah. We'll probably see a bunch. A critical vulnerability because it is widely used all over the place. Um, and it's only a matter of time until something slips through the cracks that it turns out was introduced by Copilot or a similar uh, service or feature. That said, like it's honestly a cool program. It just means you can't rely on it specifically and ignore everything like secure software development. Well, let, let me adjust. I, I like AI so far. I, I do think there's going to be 
copyright and potential stealing things we have to consider that that even if you're not paying attention to to AI coding you've probably seen in the art world the pr fact that I can get a prompt and draw a picture it's actually using it's not using one artist's work it's using a mass of humanity's work but but what is the ownership there same applies to kind of coding in some cases although if it's a public repository you're kind of making it open source but what i wanted to get to is the the solution or practical kit tip here is human secure coding practices still matter the fix for this isn't necessarily i'm sure there's things we can do in ai to give it some logic to try to avoid vulnerabilities directly but the truth is human code secure coding still matters so if, if you want to know how to fix this all of all businesses, all people that have uh, you know coders in their organization need to focus on secure coding and, and secure code lifecycle, because AI code is just using human examples to generate its code. So if all of human coding becomes more and more secure, because as a society we all get better at secure coding, even without doing anything specific, AI code should become more secure too. So I, I'd say the practical takeaway is leverage AI for sure, realize these potential negative downsides, but more importantly, just because AI exists doesn't mean we can, we still need to improve the, the human security to improve AI security. Yeah, man, and I need to improve the, uh, the curtains in my office because as the sun rises or sets as we record this, it is blinding. Uh, so with that said though, Corey, uh, your turn for the next prediction. We're off to the business process themes for our last two real predictions. Mine are, my prediction is insurers go vertical. Uh, so what do I mean here? Uh, if you watch our webinar and predictions, I go into a lot more detail here. But since you're podcast listeners, you've probably heard of many podcasts where we talked about how cybersecurity costs are increasing and even the requirements the kind of compliance like effect that insurance has had over the last few years where it used to be they they would insure almost anyone after asking a few security questions but because they've lost so much money from ransomware they're starting to become kind of an unofficial compliance arm where they put you through strong audits including active scans and big questionnaires and if you're not doing the right security practices they either may not cover you or they charge you even more. So all of you know that that's happening. If you want to know more detail, look at our past podcasts or go to the webinar version. But essentially building on that prediction, uh, a more subtle thing that's not really advertised is in 2023, we think insurers costs and requirements will go vertical as well. Certain vert industry verticals, whether it be healthcare, government, manufacturing, managed service providers, or any service provider that has many customers, the ones that are the most attractive targets for attackers, especially with ransomware, again, healthcare, managed service providers, we saw endless ransomware attacks for that. While the insurance company may not advertise it, they treat people in those verticals diff differently and the potential costs and even more importantly, the requirements may be even higher than average for those verticals because the insurers realize they're the top cost center for hacks, so they put even more requirements on them. So this is, a, a, anecdotally, we see this happening. Security vendors, by the way, we as a security vendor are at increased risk of attack because we're a big part of the supply chain. So we would be in that too. Uh, 
It's going to be a hard prediction for us to quantitatively prove out because I haven't seen any, like insurers not going to go say, hey, we're treating MSPs differently than the restaurant that we insure. They're not going to advertise this. But via all our connections, we're seeing very strong, strong uh, suggestions that certain verticals are having even worse requirements than others as far as cybersecurity insurance. And the prediction is ultimately that will, uh, will continue. By the way, one of the quantitative ways that this might develop though is you know previously when cybersecurity companies were saying here's a requirement you need to do they would say things like any remote access requires MFA I, I fully support that that's a, actually a great requirement that people already should be doing but now the insurer is going the extra step with these other vendors of an approved security vendor list so it may be more detailed that you cannot expose Microsoft RDP remotely. And if you do expose any remote access, you need to use MFA from these five providers and they will have an approved vendor list. I'm not sure if that prescriptive vendor is good because they don't, I don't think that's testing. That's more insurer relationship than anything else from what I've found. But that's one of the ways that they might put even more detailed requirements on some of the verticals that are trying to get insurance. Yeah. And speaking of verticals, we've got another business process related one, all about vendors and partners that your organization uses, like WatchGuard, um, on its on a daily basis. So we've seen over the past like two years, three years or so, this really big ramp up in supply chain attacks. Kaseya was a big example of one where an attacker went after a single application and was able to ultimately compromise hundreds or I think even thousands of end victims at the, at the end of the day. Uh, that's one example of many where they're focusing their efforts going after a specific technology provider or partner in order to increase their potential blast radius. Um, as we adopt more software as a service applications and more um, uh, MSP and MSSP activity, like a lot of uh, our management is centralized in single locations and attackers are not lazy, they're just efficient. And so they're going to go after whatever gives them the biggest bane for the buck at the end of the day. And while security of these vendors and partners you work with has always been a consideration when it comes to who you pick and who you choose at the end of the day, it hasn't always been the biggest one or maybe even one of the biggest ones. And our prediction is following this trend where we're seeing organizations become more increasingly concerned with the security of their partners and vendors. Uh, Third-party risk management tools are becoming widely adopted around the world, around the professional environment these days, where before you sign the contract with that vendor, you wanna gauge what their actual security posture is so that based off of the criticality of the data that you're sharing or how this service or system fits within your ecosystem, now you'll know whether or not that this is gonna be a good acquisition or not. These tools make it pretty easy these days. Uh, you can even set them up like we do in a way where if that organization's already gone through the efforts to get a SOC 2 compliance report or ISO 27001 compliance and they're regularly audited, you can automatically check off a lot of checkboxes there of different security controls that they have to have in place in order to get those certifications. And then maybe ship them a slightly smaller uh, set of survey questions uh, to pick up the slack from whatever potentially got missed. And the end result is these tools can spit out a risk score of, you know, low, medium, high, whatever. And then you can make a informed decision on, do we continue forward with this partnership based off of the data that we're going to be sharing with them and the risk associated with it? 
or do we need to look at potentially more secure alternatives too? And so our prediction is that the internal security of these vendors will become a top selection factor for software and hardware purchases for organizations going forward, really just behind the, the price and potentially the feature set that you're looking for. And it's largely like we're already seeing this to some degree now. Uh, we use it quite heavily internally at WatchGuard. And as a vendor, we've started receiving even more of these requests from our customers and partners we work with too. Corey, anything you want to add on that one? For for time's sake, no. I, I I could establish there's a good and a bad way to do this. We support vendor security risk assessment, but if you haven't done it, you should learn the right way to do it to not cause too much work for the partner. You want to get an accurate view of the security of whoever you're working with, but you're not going to be successful in your attempts to do that if you do it in a way that's onerous. So make sure to take advantage of things like the third-party risk management products that help with it. But if you want to hear me and Mark talk about that and talk more about how even consumer products one day, this is unassociated with this prediction, but in the future, we think consumers may even have little guides like a, a nutrition guide for the security of hardware that could help them in the future with this too. But I think we're running out of time so I think we should just jump to the bonus predictions. And why don't you do the, the first one? And I'll try not to nerd too, too much about drones. <laughs> yeah, about so too much. we had a couple of ones that didn't make the cut for our like social media purposes with the videos we recorded and put on watchguard.com slash predictions, um, largely because of, I don't know, that just didn't quite fit in with the, 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 the happiness we were trying to go with it, I guess. The first one, though, is all about weaponized consumer drones. So historically in kinetic warfare, at least in the last few decades, we've seen military grade drones uh, used quite heavily. You've probably heard of the Reaper and Predator drones that the United States and our allies use uh, in warfare around the world since like the late 90s. Um, but these drones are heavily hardened for their military use. Like they've got specialized communications to them. They probably use their own, like I'm assuming the military has their own GPS satellite stuff. Um, and the reality is they're designed to go into warfare and be defended against the types of jamming or uh, ac adversarial activity you would see targeting this equipment up there in the sky. Lately, though, with the outbreak specifically in Ukraine, we've seen consumer drones start to be used quite heavily in kinetic warfare. Like you can see drones flying around spotting artillery strikes or being used to drop grenades on the uh, opposing warring faction. And the issue with consumer-grade drones is they don't have that same hardening that military-grade drones do. Uh, Corey will uh, happily correct me that, at least in some of them, they've got secure communications back and forth to the drones using encryption. It's not like your old RC car where if you hop on the right channel, you can start taking over control. Um, but... Uh, but like have... the GPS, you specifically mentioned GPS. GPS is public. You can actually, if you have the right software radio, you can get it. And more importantly, if you can broadcast stronger than a satellite, which is not too hard because a satellite's far away, GPS is definitely an avenue of attack. Unlike the military drones, which I agree with you, I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling their navigation input is probably more hardened. However, they're sharing that data with the military drones. Probably a little less susceptible to interference from uh, foreign adversaries. So our prediction for this one was that combat um, militant, some combat militant will hack a weaponized drone and turn it back on the operator. 
And this feels and specifically like specifically ha hack a weaponized uh, commercial drone because drone. of yeah. the consumer drone because of the weaknesses there. Yeah, exactly. And it feels like we're God's only another day away from something like that potentially happening. Unfortunately, with where we're at. So on that happy one though, Corey, how about I kick it off to you for our final bonus prediction? Yeah, and the last one is pretty simple. Hacktivism makes a comeback. I, I'm sure most of the listeners know what hacktivism is. Back in the 2000s, we already we always put threat category or threat actors in three general categories of criminal ones, which are what businesses should mostly worry about. State-sponsored ones, which in the 2000s didn't affect normal people or businesses, but believe it or not, state-sponsored actors affect consumers and businesses too, so don't discount them. But we had hacktivists, and hacktivists are just activists, people that have a, a political message, their own message of some sort, and they might be a small group who wants to get a big voice, so they use cyber technology or hacks to kind of asymmetrically do something that gives them a bigger voice or more power than a small group should have. Whether the thing they're fighting for is good or bad, you know, any sort of asymmetric power is always questionable. So as I mentioned, huge in the 2000s all the way up to 2010, you had things like a Arab Spring and, and then certain countries, you know, who may not have as many human rights or civil rights, they used uh, the power of social media and hacktivism in a way to get around some of their government safeguards and try to push human rights messaging, which kind of a good way to use it. There's the group Anonymous. By the way, Anonymous is not a group. It's just a name that lots of different folks attack under. Uh, but some of the early stuff there was Operation Chantology, if I'm saying it right. That was when a bunch of people on Fortran didn't like Scientology. They thought it was a cult. I, I may not disagree, by the way, <laughs> but yeah, they they attacked them maliciously using cyber attacks. I don't support 4chan, but I don't support Scientology either. Uh, so you know what hacktivism is. It was pretty big uh, for, for probably a decade between 2000s and 2010s. Uh, I feel like until the past two years, it has dropped off recently. Hacktivism has not been quite as huge. But between the pandemic, between some of the social issues we see like Black Lives Matters, uh, resurfacing of some of the Middle Eastern human rights and Chinese human rights issues, uh, the Ukraine-Russian war where the whole world is kind of becoming hobbyist hackers depending on what side they are on, and just a lot of the political divides that are happening where folks are, are using cyber attacks to asymmetrically sp spread disinformation. Hacktivism is making a come back expect it uh and also expect some of the other actors that may not be hacktivists but state-sponsored hackers to maybe take advantage of the confusion that hacktivism uses to continue the spread of their misinformation so a pretty obvious prediction one that i think i mean we didn't throw it away because it was depressing it just has there's not much it, this is more an awareness one but we think hacktivism is going to get more popular in 2023 and if you are in a vertical that's susceptible to hack hacktivism like the public space specifically like this is one you still definitely to watch out for. Yep. So those were our cybersecurity predictions for next year. Uh, one thing I will ask is if you have any comments on them, uh, if you have your own predictions, fire them off to our uh, the 443 podcast hashtag on, uh, on Twitter for as long as that platform is still alive. I think it is. I haven't checked today. Um, and maybe we'll have like a, a listener roundup of uh, predictions on a future episode. 
So yes, thank you. Please send those forward. And uh, man, Corey, I'm looking forward to see which of us have the correct ones next year when it comes time for grading. I think we all gave all of the predictions, so I think the correct way. <laughs> that whole battle premise was just for marketing fun. But it was I fun. actually don't I don't dislike any of your predictions. I think they many of them will come true. I dislike your metaverse ones. Not to, not not to mention a, a few of the predictions you gave were ones I wrote. I think there's two predictions mm, that are solid. What yours is yours. mine. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Okay. Vice versa. <laughs> But by the way, totally true in many cases. I've presented Mark slides and vice versa so many times. Sharing is caring. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics, predictions, whatever, or suggestions of your own predictions, please reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us in two weeks, I believe, after the Christmas break.